Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your award-winning podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Kate Shaw. And I'm Leo Littman, and the band is back together once again to preview what the court has in store for us this month. But we at Strict Scrutiny also have some special things in store for all of you. So first, one exciting nugget is that Strict Scrutiny is hitting the road for the next two weeks. We've got some special live shows set up for our next two shows, so stay tuned for those. And one of them... Road trip! <laughs> two? Well, is it going to be like crossroads? Be boats, planes... <laughs> oh my gosh, who gets to be Britney? Who gets to be Britney? Who gets to be Zoe Saldana? I call Zoe Saldana. Not Britney. I'm just going to nod and smile and press on with uh, the itinerary of our upcoming road trip. Um, so the one that we're going to mention right now is a live show that will happen on March 30th in Madison, Wisconsin, in advance of the huge, huge, huge state Supreme Court election that will be held that next week on April 4th. So, yep, we are going to Badgertown. We're going to break down the stakes of the election that will determine control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, along the way, it's going to determine the future of things like reproductive rights and democracy in the state, uh, among many other things. And before we go down to Badgertown, we have to prepare ourselves because Wisconsin is still cold, cold, cold in March. And so in order to get ready for that monumental Supreme Court race and that fantastic show we're going to be doing in Madison, Wisconsin, we are first going to hit the road and actually get in an airplane and go to Hawaii. That's right. Strict scrutiny is going Hawaiian. We are going to be doing our next episode live from the University of Hawaii Richardson School of Law, and we are going to be joined by some very special local guests. So you do not want to miss it. That's next week, and then it's on to Badgertown. Aloha, bitches. (laughs) Aloha, bitches. Exactly. Um, In addition to those alohas, we also wanted to share with you that we're going to be planning another special episode for the week after the court finishes hearing arguments in May. We are going to be doing our first Strict Scrutiny listener grab bag episode where you submit your questions to us and we will answer them live on the show. We will provide you with details about how and where you can submit your questions and any other material you'd like us to comment upon. And we are going to take all of it in and we're going to answer those questions. Maybe 
show and hear a little bit of the additional material that you might submit. And we will put that all together in a very special listener-focused episode. So again, stay tuned for all of those details. But for now, on to today's show. And before we turn to previewing the cases that the court will hear next week, I actually wanted to take a beat to add a quick addendum on the epic student loan arguments that we discussed in our February recap. So you may recall that during those arguments, several of the conservative justices, with Chief Justice Roberts in the lead, were really fixated on a hypothetical lawn care company entrepreneur who decided to forego college, take out a bank loan instead of a student loan, and then not have that debt forgiven in contrast to these presumably undeserving student borrowers. Several astute listeners noted, both by email and on Twitter, that there were glaring problems with that comparison even beyond those that we identified on the show. First, if the lawn company needed to file for bankruptcy, that debt is dischargeable. Student debt generally isn't. Pretty significant distinction between the scenario and the actual situation of those affected by this debt relief plan. And in addition to the dischargeability of those loans in bankruptcy, Other listeners noted that there was a lot of COVID relief that was actually targeted specifically towards small business owners. So ostensibly, the owner of said hypothetical lawn care business could have applied for and likely would have received targeted relief that included loans that were, wait for it, forgivable. And FYI, some members of Congress also took advantage of some of these loans as well. So they were definitely available. So the predicate of all of these questions that the Chief Justice was offering was that there was some kind of unfair favoritism in singling out student borrowers for relief. And again, a sort of elitism strains were all over this. But again, as Kate points out, this hypothetical might be even more indefensible than even we acknowledge. And so we're really appreciative to our listeners for adding those important highlights that round out that particular discussion. Okay, so now on to the previews for what the court will be hearing in the March sitting. The court is hearing some really interesting and important cases throughout the March sitting, including the first week, um, and they actually have a pretty full sitting for once this term, but we are just going to focus on previewing three cases from the first week. So up on the first week, the first case we wanted to talk about is United States versus Hansen, and that's a case about the constitutionality of the federal law that prohibits people from encouraging or inducing unlawful immigration. Specifically, the question is whether the statute violates the First Amendment, which, among other things, you know, safeguards the freedom of speech. And the challenge in this case is what's called a facial challenge. That is, the defendant is arguing this statute can't be enforced against anyone. And the defendant is arguing both that the statute can't be enforced against anyone and that it violates the First Amendment because the statute is what's called overbroad, meaning it criminalizes a substantial amount of speech that is actually protected under the First Amendment. Now, if the issue in this case sounds familiar, it should, at least for our OG listeners who've been with us since the first season of the pod. So way back in the 2019 term, the court took up the same issue in United States versus Sinang Smith, but it ultimately decided not to resolve whether the statute was in conflict with the First Amendment because the court said the Court of Appeals had brought up that issue on its own rather than waiting for the parties to do so. And so the Supreme Court basically punted on the question of whether the statute was constitutional. 
The defendant in this case, Hansen, is supported by a pretty strikingly diverse range of amicus briefs. So those are the friend of the court briefs filed by people other than the parties to the case, but who have some interest or expertise they want to bring to the court's attention. And those include briefs by the Libertarian Cato Institute, the City and County of San Francisco, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, a group of religious organizations, and others, groups that are not always on the same side of a case, but in this instance, they are you know, speaking with one voice in support of the position taken by Hansen that this law is unconstitutional. And a key issue in the case will be whether the court adopts what's known as a narrowing construction of the statute. So basically, this is when the court says, yes, the words of the statute might suggest one meaning, but we're going to say that the statute doesn't cover a bunch of things because if the statute did prohibit those things, then it would be unconstitutional. So on this account, the court might narrow the statute for the purpose of saving the statute from being unconstitutional. Now, the statute itself makes it a felony to, quote, encourage or induce an alien to come to, enter, or reside in the United States, knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that such coming to, entry, or residence is or will be in violation of the law. And the government asked the court to interpret the statute to prohibit solicitation or facilitation, basically aiding and abetting, violations. So where you are trying to encourage somebody to do something that specifically violates the law. But the big question in the case will be whether it's okay and the court thinks it's appropriate for the court to read into the statute a bunch of limitations that aren't explicitly or specifically mentioned in the words of the statute itself. When this issue was up at the court last time in Sinanang Smith, the chief justice joked about that aspect of the case, whether the court would be basically rewriting the statute rather than interpreting it. Here in this exchange with Mark Fleming of Wilmer Hale, who was representing the defendant in Sinanang Smith. That we interpret it as Congress picking up, in the government's view, solicitation, the common definition of solicitation, not including the exceptions, etc., because this is a common kind of thing. You see, something like that. That's it. That's the question, because that's what's floating around in my mind. I think, Your Honor, if you write that opinion, you'd have to add one more sentence, which is the judgment below is affirmed. But if you add that sentence, we would be fine with it, with one exception. Well, or one question, which is the notion that there might be exceptions to the rule that solicitation has to be limited to a solicitation of criminal conduct with specific intent on the part of the defendant that the criminal conduct be committed. If would we, that would we, oh, sorry. Would, would we have to get that passed by the Senate and House <laughs> and then signed by the President before we could put that, that many changes to the statute? Absolutely, Mr. Chief Justice. And the fact that you would need to do that in order for it to be constitutional is a good indication that Congress did not mean for the statute to be read that way, which is why we think the easier opinion to write is an opinion that says we look at the text, we look at the context, and there's nothing in this subsection 4 that suggests that Congress meant the kind of limited statute that Justice Breyer would you talk a little Now, the last time this question was at the court in Sinanang Smith, the court was really interested in an amicus brief filed by UCLA law professor Eugene Volokh, who argued that the statute could not be upheld as a solicitation statute because solicitation applies only where you're aiding and abetting a crime, and many kinds of unauthorized immigration or unauthorized entry is not a crime. It is just subject to civil but not criminal penalties. And here is our fellow Cassandra, Steve Breyer, invoking that brief from that last oral argument. Uh, I want to be sure you get an answer to this question, though, slightly. Uh, You've read the briefs, obviously, and they have a long, long list of horribles, of which uh, this is just a few, you know, that you've heard this morning. 
But Professor Volokh's brief gets rid of most of these horribles in a simple way. He lists the conditions <coughs> under which the Court traditionally has said a solicitation of a crime statute is constitutional. But the first condition, and most important, is that what you are soliciting is a crime. And it's easy to read this. When they use the word law, you mean read it violation of criminal law. Okay? And that would get rid of most of them, and, and I think maybe all of them. I don't know. But I know that sometimes an alien who enters the United States is committing a crime. All right? But I can't think of any instance in which residing in the United States is a crime. Now, perhaps because they can take a hint, the defendant's brief contains an entire section on how this statute prohibits encouraging civil violations, which is out of whack with how we usually think about solicitation statutes. So again, basically enshrining this Volokh argument into their own briefs before the court. At the oral argument in Sinanang Smith, noted free speech enthusiast Sam Alito was, not surprisingly, skeptical of this position because, of course, he was. He brought up a hypothetical about someone who encourages another person to commit suicide and committing suicide isn't criminal, but he said the other person who does encourage the act could still be subject to prosecution. Justice Alito is likely to have something to say in this oral argument. Kel surprise. But also at the oral argument in Sinanang Smith, the court was very concerned about some specific applications of the statute. So here are the Chief Justice and Justice Sotomayor voicing some of these concerns. Well, Reached let's under suppose, our reading. you know, a, a, a grandmother uh, whose granddaughter is in the United States illegally uh, t- tells a granddaughter, you know, I hope you will stay because, you know, I will miss you. Things will not get better if you go back. So I encourage you to stay. That, that, that would be illegal under the statute, right? Mr. Fagan, but it has been used, according to the Amnesty International brief, and DHS admitted that there was a watch list at the border in which um, these charitable organizations people who were giving legal advice at the border, all sorts of individuals were being watched because they potentially violated this encouragement provision and inducement provision. So you're saying there's been no absolute, um, there's been no prosecution except Hendrickson, which was a, uh, a woman who hired a housekeeper who told her the absolute truth. If you go back, you, you're not, if you go, if you return to your country, you may not get back. Absolutely true statement, and she was prosecuted for that true statement as an encouragement and inducement for the housekeeper to stay here. But if you say this has no chilling effect, is that accurate? And once again, no surprise, these concerns featured prominently in Hansen's brief, which opens with, as a second sentence, and I'm going to read this at length because I think it's worth people hearing. This statute makes it a crime for a grandmother to say she doesn't want her undocumented grandchild to leave her, a doctor to advise her patient with an expiring student visa that the patient needs medical treatment provided in the United States, a priest to inform a non-citizen parishioner whose employment authorization is ending about church child care and pantry resources that would support her remaining, and a lawyer to counsel an out-of-status non-citizen that she has the ability to become a lawful permanent resident if she does not leave the country. And those descriptions, I think, make really clear the important on-the-ground implications of this case as well. 
And in keeping with that beat, the Henderson case that Justice Sotomayor alluded to in that colloquy with Eric Fagan involves someone who gave advice to her undocumented housekeeper about how, if she stayed in the United States without authorization, she might have problems getting authorization to stay or later to return. So again, we have seen a lot of these issues play out in front of the court before, but without an actual decision in Sinanang Smith. So this will be a second go around um, with a very differently constituted court. But we wanted to give you a sense of some of the issues that have been in play and that will be in play. And we will see how this newly constituted young and restless court will respond to them. So the next case we are going to preview from the first week of the March sitting is Arizona versus Navajo Nation, which is a very important federal Indian law case about the Navajo Nation's ability to access water and their ability to enforce the federal government's obligation to provide them with access to water. So specifically, the nation is asking the Department of the Interior to determine whether the Little Colorado River, which runs through the Navajo Reservation, is sufficient to meet the nation's water needs. And if it is not sufficient, the nation says, the federal government has to develop a plan to supply the nation with water from other sources. The case presents two questions, one of which sounds pretty technical, so we're going to try to unpack them here. One issue is whether the federal government, under a series of treaties with the Navajo Nation, as well as the federal government's constitutional relationship with the nation, owes the nation a duty to address the nation's needs for water, and whether any such duty can be enforced in court. The federal government argues that the government has only those duties that it has expressly accepted. The nation points out that the treaties between the federal government and the nation contemplate the provision of water to the nation. That is, it's hard to have a reservation, a place where you can live and work, and meaningfully under the treaties, the reservations were supposed to support farming without water. Several amicus briefs focus on the established history of the federal government undertaking a duty to provide water to Native tribes under a line of cases stemming from the 1908 decision in Winters versus United States. Um, and in Winters, the court considered the riparian, it's a fancy word for water, rights of tribes and held, among other things, that when reservations were created by the United States government, they were created with the intention of allowing indigenous settlements to become self-reliant and self-sufficient. And because reservations need water to support, for example, agricultural self-sufficiency, the court concluded that riparian rights were reserved for tribes as an implication of the treaties that created the reservations. And in some ways, the issue in this case relates to a broader theme of this term and previous ones, and that is whether the court is going to narrow the availability of remedies in ways that could really jeopardize the existence and substance of certain rights and effectively make those rights unenforceable. Because here, you know, if you say the United States has a duty to reserve tribal water rights, but not to say secure or enforce those rights, you know, the duty to reserve water rights isn't all that meaningful. Likewise, if tribes can't actually enforce the United States duty to reserve water rights, you know, that also makes that duty and any accompanying right much less meaningful. Another issue in this case is, assuming that there is a duty, or even if there is a duty, whether the district court and the Court of Appeals had the authority to resolve the case in the way that they did in light of the Supreme Court's order in another case, Arizona versus California. This was a long-running original jurisdiction case about water rights in the lower basin of the Colorado River. And for those of you who might not remember, original jurisdiction cases are cases that are filed at the Supreme Court as a trial court. There are usually cases between states, for example, here, Arizona and California, and that's why they're filed in the U.S. Supreme Court as a trial court. Basically, in Arizona versus California, 
The court said that Congress apportioned the mainstream of the Colorado River and left to the different states the tributaries in the lower basin. And the federal government and the states alleged that the relief in Arizona versus Navajo Nation would effectively require the federal government to do something with the mainstream waters that the court prohibited it from doing in Arizona versus California. So there's that separate issue as well. I'll just take a beat on this and say, I think this is going to really vex Neil Gorsuch because of his commitment to textualism. And there isn't, I think, an explicit right to water. It's an implied kind of right under Winters. And then he's the guy who really cares about Native American tribal rights. And that's the big conflict here. And so I'm going to be really interested to see what he does in this oral argument or if his head is just going to actually explode. I feel like another consideration is, right, the importance of historical practice and precedent, which I also Mm -hmm. think supports the tribes. Those are similarly, like, not considerations that Neil Gorsuch is exactly known for caring about. Um, But, you know, we will see how the different interpretive moves and, like, underlying substantive considerations here that, you know, I think are partially traceable to, like, the constitutional relationship between Native nations or tribes and the federal government, you know, also kind of cut in favor of the tribes. So, yeah, I just – I have no idea how this is going to play out. And I actually am not even sure he's going to be that cross-pressured here because I do think that his otherwise pretty categorical commitment to the text and nothing but the text is actually subject to something of an exception in these cases where I do Hmm. think he's willing to – concede that when we're talking about treaty interpretation, like long settled practice and embedded understandings that sort of flow from the relationship between tribes and the federal government actually are significant and bear legal weight, even if they're not in the text of treaties themselves. Mm -hmm. And so here I actually, if I were going in, I would feel you know, relatively confident that I had a good chance of getting Gorsuch if I were representing the nation in this case. Um, so I don't think this mm-hmm. is necessarily a head-exploding case for him, but obviously to be seen. And I feel like just on this score, there's a really fascinating forthcoming paper by Professor Greg Oblowski at Stanford Law School, who's been a previous guest on the show, and a student at Stanford Law, Tanner Allreed, about the interpretation of the Constitution and including, you know, how Native peoples debated and interpreted the Constitution around the time of the founding, which I think you know, supports incorporating a broader corpus of materials like, you know, embedded understandings, historical practice in order to incorporate those perspectives. Um, so that could become relevant as well. Good timing on that paper. Definitely. So pivoting to the next case that we wanted to talk about, a very different kind of case from the first week of the March sitting, and that is Jack Daniels Properties versus VIP Products LLC, a trademark case. Um, And the case is about whether the humorous use of another entity's trademark can be subject to a trademark infringement claim, and whether humorous use of a trademark receives some heightened First Amendment protection or is instead subject to just the usual standard for trademark infringement, which just asks whether consumers are likely to be confused by the mark. Now, that all may sound very complicated. So the facts here are really going to be clarifying. And again, most listeners are likely familiar with Jack Daniels, which produces whiskey. We are more familiar with it, but um, less well-known than Jack Daniels is the dog toy known as Bad Spaniel. So this is a dog toy in the shape of a whiskey bottle that has some similar markings to a Jack Daniels bottle. Um, Whereas Jack Daniels says old number seven brand, the dog toy says old number two on your Tennessee carpet. Get why it's funny? (laughs) Okay. And while the whiskey bottle says it's 40% alcohol by volume, the toy says that they are 43% 
poo by volume and 100% smelly. Again, see why it's funny. This is all shaping up to be the most chaotic oral <laughs> argument of the term. Like, there's just too many poo references and scatological humor to escape not having utter chaos. I'm not sure if topping the mall is possible. I mean, in terms of chaotic arguments, it's going to be really – well, I mean, no, I'm not saying it's chaos, in Black but... Santa. I mean, when Black Santa <laughs> smashed on, yeah. the conveyor belt to coin a term from Prince Harry. But this is approaching – conveyor belt quality. Um, it's going to be chaos. Yeah. So we'll get into some of the things that the briefs say that I think suggest this argument could be a roaring good time. Um, but as Melissa suggested, you know, we are a little familiar with the bad Spaniels toy concept. And I feel somewhat personally invested in this case as a dog owner. You know, my dog Stevie has a dog toy that is a Chulu lemon bag that has some... Adorable. I, Adorable. I think so. You know, similar coloring and font as a Lululemon bag. She also has some of these alcohol-related dog toys. You know, I'm a Moscato fan. She has a dog toy that says Pupcake Moscato. That's a dog toy shaped like a wine bottle inspired by Cupcake Moscato. But are you confused about whether or not you could drink from that dog <laughs> no, toy? It turns out, it no, it turns out I no, am not actually no, not. confused. Um, I have never tried to either take Stevie's Chulu Lemon toy or, you know, Chewy Vuitton bag out to function <laughs> as a purse, nor have I attempted to consume her Pupcake Moscato bottle for whatever it's worth. You know it's a parody. You know it's <laughs> I, a parody and you are not confused. I, no. Right. Okay. Just sidebar. Your dogs can like – they take and they don't destroy these really cute sounding toys. Like Shadow is a beast. People sometimes give her dog toys and in 90 seconds like there's fluff all over my carpet and they just – they die. She just murders them immediately. No? Stevie will tear yeah. apart rope toys. Um, she'll but, like yeah. tear apart the threads but – Basically, she doesn't destroy other toys. I think we just need like some sturdier toys. Like one of those Kong knot toys. Those are really good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she. Ripped, yeah. I think she's ripped those up too. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> the gist of this is the toy makers say these are humorous parodies that get First Amendment protection. The Ninth Circuit agreed with this. Jack Daniels obviously does not. Okay. Can I just stop here and like – an alcohol company, literally with all the alcohol at their disposal, not having a sense of humor about this, seems really like, have a drink and then <laughs> contemplate this. Well, they right? Jack Daniels maintains they do have a sense of humor. And Jack Daniels is represented by Lisa Blatt. And, you know, continuing on with our predictions about what might happen in this argument, I think there will be poop jokes and poop references. So just to take this passage from the brief, which I am now going to quote, and I quote, Jack Daniels loves dogs and appreciates a good joke. That one's for you, Melissa. But, the brief continues, Jack Daniels likes its customers even more and doesn't want them confused or associating its fine whiskey with dog poop. Poop humor has its time and place, particularly for toddlers and young children. Are they drinking Jack Daniels? <laughs> like, what the fuck is this brief? <laughs> Well, uh, this brief does include an extended poop section, so maybe maybe I'll I'll read some of this. So, quote: the poop emoji delights many of us, as do poop-related books for children, e.g., Professor Poopy McDoodoo, the kids' book of poop. But poop humor is not for everyone, and in the wrong setting, it can kill the mood. I'm sorry, you cannot put a passage like this. And disclaim that you are not above a good poop joke and then file this lawsuit. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, like, 
protect your mark, but then don't say like, you know, listen, we love a good joke and we think this is funny, but it really crosses a line here. And our customers literally can't tell the difference between a dog toy and the possibility of poop and fine whiskey. Like, I mean, this is insane. Yeah. I mean, and who was the associate that had to go research <laughs> all of the Professor poop Poopy McDoodoo? <laughs> yeah, all of I know. The I, poop books. Um, I mean, the person's like, I cannot believe I went to law school and I can't even discharge my student debt. And now I'm doing this. Like, amazing. <laughs> You know, if you think the brief kind of kills the mood um, and, you know, goes a little far in focusing on dog poop, uh, brief side note slash preview, you know, we will talk at the end of the show about Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan's temper tantrum (laughs) and extended conservative victimization tour. Um, But one of the things that esteemed member of Article 3 did was to say in an interview after the fact that the Stanford Law student protesters behaved like, quote, dog shit. So maybe this is like a dog shit themed episode. I don't know. I think everyone needed a drink, (laughs) right? Everyone needed an old fashioned. Um, Okay. Um, So again, in keeping with this defense of the mark, the brief also rattles off some fun hypotheticals and examples of other parodies that are not that funny. For example, the fact that there are knockoffs like Ugh boots, as in U-G-H, like ugh. Or adios sportswear, unlike Adidas, that may be funny, but may also confuse people. And of course, there are marijuana-infused candies or foods, like the marijuana-infused double-stuff Stonios cookies that may also confuse those who consume Oreos. The brief also lists the following examples of parodies that have been enjoined by courts. One is a white powder candy that supposedly resembles cocaine packaged in a plastic container resembling a Coca-Cola bottle. Melissa's laughing. I mean, you know. Um, and then there are pornographic. I mean, I see why those might be enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't even gotten to the porn um, because there's, a, there's apparently porn that imitates Ben and Jerry's trademarks. And it's like what? Leo? Okay, what you're, obviously what I was going to be flavors? I was going to be made to read this. Um, Wait, but do we need to give listeners with kids in the room just like fast forward thirty yeah, sixty okay. seconds? Yeah, okay. This is an warning. earmuffs moment. <laughs> earmuffs, <laughs> children. Like, we didn't give an earmuffs warning for Kyle Duncan and the dog shit comment, That's but true. we are going to give you for this. Okay, so. there's okay. Uh, Harry Garcia, um, late night snatch. New York, super fat and chunky, peanut butter D cups, and more. Um, so, you know, this argument is trending. Boston cream thigh. Boston cream thigh would be the best. This argument may be trending toward the NC-17, um, but, you know, that's that's also in the brief. Again, pour out some Jack Daniels for the associate that had to identify all of these and then document it in this brief. I mean, I think that the combination of the subject matter, some of the briefing choices, and the identity, Lisa Blatt, the lawyer arguing the case, means this is going to be a wild ride. And since we're on a little bit of a nostalgia tour in this episode, I thought about during our first year of doing the podcast, we talked about Lisa Blatt's argument in the very first case that the court heard remotely when COVID shut things down. And that case was PTO versus Booking.com. Lisa was arguing that Booking.com could be trademarked, even though .com is obviously a commonly used and generic phrase when used independently. And in that case, she had this example that we will play here. I just want to say one thing about the government's making fun of the Cheesecake Factory. Crab House is not a literal house where crabs live. They're actually dead and you eat them. 
and the government thought crab house was generic. So if you go down this road of thinking that certain words are off limits, I just think you're creating a real mess that's very unstable, unprincipled, and uh, unworkable and unclear. That was good. That was funny. We were hoping for some funnies this go-round, too. Um, but again, the question in this case is whether these humorous parodies are entitled to First Amendment protection and whether it is harder to establish trademark infringement when you are dealing with a parody like this. So Jack Daniels is arguing that limiting the Lanham Act would infringe its First Amendment rights to expression since the company's name and the design of its bottle conveys messages as well. Now, the case turns in part on how the court reads its previous decision in Campbell versus Aka Froze Music, Inc., a 1994 case, which considered whether Two Live Crew's parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman was fair use. The court said it could be fair use and that it might be easier to establish that it was fair use and not trademark infringement since it was a parody. But FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, had a really good amicus brief supporting the dog toy company that emphasizes the importance and frequency of parodies on college university campuses. And so interestingly, they argue that maybe this is a big part of sort of university First Amendment culture that cannot be stifled and should not be stifled. In contrast, the federal government is supporting Jack Daniels. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Books. I love, love, love fresh flowers. I love how beautiful they are. I love how it brings like a modicum of spring, especially when New York is still trying to figure out if spring is actually going to happen. And that is why I love Books. And this Mother's Day, it's even more perfect that Books is available because you can actually give mom all of the flowers she deserves. And we all know she deserves the best. So send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, when you shop at Books, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. And not only are you getting 25% off, you're getting access to beautiful floral arrangements that everybody likes because Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers that are grown on the side of a volcano. How's that for commitment? Books has modern designs and unique flowers that you can't find anywhere else. And ordering from Books is simple. You go online, you pick the delivery date, and boom, you're done. So Mother's Day is May 12th, so don't miss out on the chance to thank your mom or the mothers in your life that you love and order your Books now. And with 25% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your aunt, even your grandma, and to me. 
So go to books.com and use promo code strict for 25% off. That's B O U Q S.com promo code strict books, promo code strict. Let's pour one out, as it were, for the March sitting. Um, that's going to be really fun. I, I do think it is the perfect sitting for a drinking game. Like how many OG references to Sinanang Smith you can hear in a single argument? How many references to dog poop? Like I think it's just going to be amazing. But you know what's really amazing, Kate? Well, well is it that we're going to be um, in Hawaii and we can actually well, yes, do some drinking while I mean, some of these cases are like, being argued? Because that's pretty amazing. I think that's going to be amazing to truly be in Hawaii. It's probably going to be like five in the morning, three in the morning when we're listening to these. And I think we definitely have to drink during that. So that's going to be amazing. But what's also amazing is that we have so much court culture to catch up on. So it's time. It's time for that. It's time. So some of this is a little bit like we're catching up on things that happened a little while ago because there has just been so much breaking news. But we did want to mention that we are finally getting opinions out of the court. The court waited a very long time before beginning to issue its first actual merits opinions of the term, but they are now coming. And we wanted to briefly mention that Justice Jackson had her first opinion for the court a few weeks back. That was a unanimous opinion in Delaware versus Pennsylvania, a case we briefly previewed about what should happen to abandoned property where the property is intangible and multiple states have plausible claims to it. The property here consisted of prepaid money orders, which were sent, but which nobody ever picked up. Um, And Justice Jackson's, again, unanimous. That's pretty common that a new justice will get as their first assignment, a relatively straightforward unanimous opinion. That happened here. Um, And her opinion concluded that a federal statute called the Federal Disposition Act governed, and so the abandoned proceeds should go to the state where the products were purchased. Um, And there's the one thing I wanted to flag about the opinion was that I said it was unanimous, and it was, except for Part 4B, which was a part of the opinion which talked about legislative history, and which presumably the because it talked about legislative <laughs> history. Well, this will be interesting for Navajo nations. Yeah, yeah if, if there, well, if there's legislative history, I'm not even sure if there is, but it, I think as a going forward signal. So just to say what happened: Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Barrett very performatively did not join that part of the opinion. So the beginning of the opinion says they join all but part 4B. Nobody wrote separately. Legislative to- history, I don't even know. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't say that was why they weren't joining, but presumably that's why they didn't join. You know, they didn't write separately to explain, but this is a very classic Justice Scalia move. He would often withhold his agreement from some subset of an opinion, sometimes from like a single sentence or a footnote in an opinion. But actually, since he left the court, there hasn't been that much of it. But this made me think that practice may be coming back. We also got an opinion in Bittner versus United States, which was about the kinds of penalties that the federal government can impose on people who fail to report information about foreign bank accounts that they maintain. And it was a weird lineup, but by a 5-4 vote, the court held that the penalties attach based on you know the failure to file a form. So even if the form didn't include information about several bank accounts, the penalties attach on like a per report or per form basis rather than a per account you didn't mention basis. And it was a 5-4 opinion, but a pretty odd lineup. So Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion with Justice Jackson joining the opinion in full and the Chief Justice, Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh joining except for one part. And Justice Barrett wrote the dissent that was joined by Justices Thomas, Sotomayor and Kagan. 
And the part of the opinion that only Justice Jackson joined in the majority is a really interesting and important section that suggests an interpretive principle known as the rule of lenity, which I'll explain in a little bit, applies to statutes that impose penalties. And the rule of lenity basically says if a statute could be interpreted you know, two ways, the court should adopt the approach that is not favorable to the government and is favorable to the criminal defendant or civil defendant, you know, reflecting some approach of leniency. And only Justice Jackson joined that portion of the opinion. Um, and I think that that's just, you know, an interesting point as far as, you know, the trajectory and some of the shared views that she and Justice Gorsuch might have going forward. I just want to highlight, we did kind of call this particular coupling when she first went on the bench. Like people were talking about like, would she just sort of slot in to Breyer's old spot? What would be the new allegiances? And we said that there could be some real opportunities for some strange bedfellows coalitions with her and Gorsuch, who also has a sort of libertarian streak in the criminal justice area. We also thought Sotomayor might be with her on some of these. So, you know, maybe we missed the ball on this one with her. But this is not surprising. I think we, again, were Cassandra's on this one. And now for some court culture. First of all, we want to draw your attention to a recently posted social science paper entitled, Let Me Just Interrupt You. The paper is authored by Erica Kai, Ankitha Gupta, Catherine Keith, Brendan O'Connor, and Douglas Rice. And it is a longitudinal study of Supreme Court arguments that span over four decades where the researchers found that on the court, female advocates are interrupted more frequently than male advocates, and that the gender effect dwarfs other influences on interruptions, like perhaps ideological alignments. Very surprising <laughs> to learn that on the court, women get interrupted more than their male counterparts. Um, actually not surprising. It's actually entirely consistent with other studies that we've highlighted on the podcast, including the study by Tanya Jacoby and Dylan Schwears that also talked about the interruptions on the bench by male justices of their female colleagues. And this particular study uses as its opening example an exchange that we previously highlighted on the show, and it involves Sam Alito being a complete jerk to Solicitor General Prelogger in the United States versus Texas case argued last term, not the one with the same name argued this term. This was the United States versus Texas SB8 case. So why don't we play that clip here? Well, I certainly acknowledge, Justice Alito, that an injunction that would bind state court judges is extremely rare. It's not unheard of, and I think in the unprecedented uh, facts of this case, it's appropriate relief. And, well, and judges have been enjoined. Is- Let me just interrupt you. Judges have been enjoined from performing unlawful acts. We'll post the paper in our show notes online, so if you want to take a look at it, you can do that. But the second thing I wanted to call attention to in court culture is a New York Times story a couple of weeks ago on educational homogeneity at SCOTUS, and particularly among the ranks of the clerks. As the gray lady noted, um, it's not just that the justices hail from only a handful of law schools or that their clerks hail from only a handful of law schools and Harvard and Yale are usually predominant among those law schools. It's also that attending an Ivy League university for undergraduate and Harvard, Yale and Princeton stand out here is especially predictive of one's future employment as a Supreme Court clerk. So the ranks of the clerks already quite rarefied, not only reflect a kind of homogeneity in educational institution in terms of law schools, but also in terms of undergraduate institutions. And this prompts a couple of questions. So one, 
This is gross, but not entirely unexpected. Um, It is, I think, this underlying sense that going to an Ivy League college and specific Ivy League colleges is some kind of Wonka golden ticket that um, will just open all kinds of doors for you. But I I think it is that sense that it is a golden ticket that is really animating a lot of the grievances around affirmative action and have fueled the antipathy for affirmative action. So it's not that folks are losing their minds or not entirely that folks are losing their minds because black kids are going to some random state university. It's always been this lingering anxiety that the best opportunities, the most important opportunities are being redistributed ostensibly to the undeserving and and not to people who should have them as it were. So that piece was in the New York Times, February 6, 2023. And we should say the piece was actually reporting on the findings of a study that was done by three law professors, Tracy George at Vanderbilt, Albert Yoon at Toronto, and Mitu Gulati at the University of Virginia. Wahoo wah. Our third snippet of court culture involves one of our favorite justices. Ketanji Brown Jackson was recently inducted into the Miami Palmetto Senior High School Hall of Fame, and it was reported on Twitter by Katie Fang, who is a host of her own show on MSNBC. And she got to take a picture with Justice Jackson at the ceremony. And it's like just super cute. Yes. Like her high school is so proud of her. Of course they are. It should be. Um, and we are proud of her too. So congratulations, Justice Jackson, for making it into the Miami Palmetto Senior High School Hall of Fame. There have been a lot of developments in the last couple of weeks in the sort of post-Dobbs landscape, new lawsuits, new oral arguments around questions of abortion regulation. We are going to put a pin in those for this episode and go deep on them in our next episode, live from Hawaii with a special guest. So we are not at all neglecting this important topic. We are just reserving it for next week when we're going to have more time and we're going to go deep. Can we say that the special guest is Justice Alito? (laughs) I don't, know, uh, I don't know if we want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> okay, spoil don't, the all right, surprise. All right, all right, okay, okay. I don't, I'm like, what if it doesn't happen? What if he cancels <laughs> at the last minute? You're right, you're right. We shouldn't say it. Okay. No, don't get hopes up. <laughs> Mum's the word. Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets, the master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Um, We also, relatedly, got an update on LL's new project. No, I'm not talking about LL Cool J or even Leah Lippman, but the other LL, Leonard Leo. He has a new project, which was described by 
Andy Kroll, Andrea Bernstein of ProPublica, and Nick Sergi in an article in Documented. The article explains that Leonard Leo has plans to, quote unquote, crush liberal dominance across American life. And it describes Leo's new organization, Teneo, which is an effort to build a network of conservatives that can roll back liberal influence in Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and among authors and academics with pro athletes and Hollywood producers. The article describes it as a, quote unquote, federalist society for everything. This is terrifying. It's also a little odd that the name is Teneo. There was already, I think, like a consulting organization called Teneo. Um, In any event, that's the name of Leo's new enterprise. And it's announced. I wonder if he's running it out of one of his main houses or both of his main houses or, <laughs> or whether it's some from other the building place. across the Supreme Court. No, that was a, that ah, was a different that's a good conservative place. That's a good place. efforts directed that's a good at place. the court, but place. I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. Who can mm-hmm, say? Mm-hmm. Um, or hey, the Supreme Court Historical Society. Why not use that one too? <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be great. Like, perfect, perfect. Put perfect, it all perfect, in one perfect. building. Um, put it so, in the Supreme Court. <laughs> so <laughs> cut out all the middlemen, right? That's a good idea. So there's a video that announces the creation of this Teneo, and it's not Leo in the video. It's co-founder Evan Beyer. But the video contains this, like, wild description that's kind of the pinnacle of projection that I will verbatim provide you with. So here's what it says. Imagine a group of four people sitting at the Harvard Club for lunch in midtown Manhattan, a billionaire hedge funder, a film producer, a Harvard professor, and a New York Times writer. The billionaire says... Wouldn't it be cool if middle school kids had free access to sex change therapy paid for by the federal government? Well, the filmmaker says, I'd love to do a documentary on that. It will be a major motion film. The Harvard professor says, we can do studies on that to say that's absolutely biologically sound and safe. I'm sorry, I can't read this with a straight face. I love that it's a Harvard professor and the Harvard club. Yes, of course. The New York Times person says, I'll profile people who feel trapped in the wrong gender. From this, he imagines that liberals can put different kinds of capital together and go out into the world and basically wreck shop. Uh, Look, I I was laughing because it is such a preposterous caricature (laughs) of what I gather these people think liberals sit around doing and plotting. But clearly, I think the transphobia that seems to be at the heart of that anecdote is not remotely funny. I was just laughing at the kind of ridiculousness of the kind of twisted imagination of Leonard Leo and his co-travelers in this endeavor. I was laughing well, at the New York Times as a pro-trans right. <laughs> media outlet. Like, it's kind of amazing. The Onion had a very nice, let's say, description of the New York Times approach to trans rights um, that I would recommend to our listeners. Um, but just to give you, again, more of a sense of this organization, you know, among the founders or members or backers are not just Leonard Leo, also Peter Thiel, the Charles Koch Foundation, the Bradley Foundation, the DeVos family, Josh Hawley is apparently a co-founder. Members have included or maybe include, I'm not totally sure, Ben Shapiro, Elise Stefanik, Catherine Mizell, who's the judge that struck down the mask mandate at airports. So this is, yeah, their new shtick. I just love that this is what they think liberals are doing. I know. I wish liberals did this. Uh, I mean, it would kind of be great if liberals were this coordinated, but alas. Yeah. And, you know, uh, maybe transitioning to what feels like an actually coordinated media 
campaign cross-cutting, right, a few different kinds of individuals and entities, we come now to the dog shit portion of the court culture segment. Um, So by this point, many of our listeners have probably read about or otherwise heard about the incident at Stanford Law School involving student protesters, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Kyle Duncan and Stanford Law Administrators. You know, it is difficult to describe or just like say what happened, you know, without kind of prompting some reactions, but we're going to try to summarize it anyway. Who cares? Let's do it. Let's just do it. Obviously, I really care what some people think about (laughs) what I say, but, you know. (laughs) Let's set the scene. Here's how this event started. The Stanford Federalist Society chapter hosted an event on campus at which Judge Duncan, again, judge on the Fifth Circuit, was invited to speak. Judge Duncan is a Trump appointee. We have talked about him on this show before. Um, Just let me tick through a couple of the reasons that we have talked about him. One, he authored an opinion in a case that used the wrong name for a transgender litigant, um, essentially deadnaming this litigant, refused to order courts to use the litigant's correct pronouns. Uh, He joined the opinion upholding Governor Abbott's prohibition on abortions in the early period of the COVID pandemic. He joined the opinion ordering the Biden administration to deploy a Navy sailor who refused the COVID vaccine. The Supreme Court, yes, this Supreme Court, later overruled that order. Kyle, Um, you've gone too far. (laughs) Um, And he joined an opinion rejecting challenges to voting restrictions that were said to disproportionately burden voters of color. So apparently, someone decided that the young minds at Stanford Law School have a lot to learn from Kyle Duncan. And in advance of this event, some Stanford students decided to exercise their free speech rights by putting up posters on campus criticizing Judge Duncan for his rulings and criticizing the Federalist Society for inviting him. You call that that free speech? Kind of sounds like cancel culture to me, Melissa. It does sound like cancel culture. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely sounds like dog shit. Sounds like dog shit cancel culture. So dog shit cancel culture. And then the event itself happened, and Judge Duncan was introduced to speak. And when he went to the dais, there were students who were making noises and interjecting comments and doing some heckling while he began his remarks. And they brought with them signs that also criticized Judge Duncan. This then devolved into the judge being unable to give his prepared remarks in the way that he planned. And so he then requested a Stanford Law School administrator and an administrator in the room. This is Stanford's Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Tyrion Steinbach, um, who then stood up and gave some lengthy remarks about how she understood the students' feelings about Duncan and how Duncan's words and actions as a sitting judge had caused harm to communities that she valued and to students that she cared a lot about. But she also said that the students should allow him to speak, even though events like these raised questions about the soundness of campus speech policies. Um, But she also posed questions to Duncan, including whether his decisions on the bench were really what he wanted to sort of reflect his legacy. And I think she said a couple of times, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? So here's a clip of her remarks. This comes from Jay Willis's Twitter account, which documented it. In this space, in this space that people learn and again live, I really do wholeheartedly welcome you because me and many people in this administration do absolutely believe in free speech. We believe that it is necessary. We believe that the way to address speech that feels abhorrent, that feels harmful, 
that literally denies the humanity of people, that one way to do that is with more speech and not less, and not to shut you down or censor you or censor the student group that invited you here. That is hard, that is uncomfortable, and that is a policy and a principle that I think is worthy of defending even in this time, even in this time. After this exchange, Judge Duncan chose to end his remarks and immediately go into the Q&A portion of the session. And during that Q&A portion of the session, students asked some very pointed and, you know, hostile questions of the judge. And Judge Duncan punched back. You know, that's what you do, apparently, as the adult in the room and the federal official befitting your judicial role. Um, so that seems like judicial restraint. Oh, that's, yeah. That's yeah, judicial yeah. restraint. Like, when that's they say judges restraint. hear cases and controversies, they mean judges will cause some controversies and stir shit up. <laughs> um, so uh, here, too, we're going to when they go low, we go lower. Right. <laughs> like we kneecap them and threaten their professional livelihood, as we'll get to in a second. Um, so. Here, too, we're going to play some clips just so you have a sense of some of these exchanges. Um, these clips are also from Jay Willis's Twitter feed, as well as Chris Geidner's Twitter feed. Um, Chris runs Law Dork News for interested listeners. So, again, we're just going to play some exchanges between Judge Duncan and some of the students. I'm going to triple down on it, no, and please. I'm going to quadruple down on it, because you are willfully misunderstanding no, what I'm saying. Great. So, in other words, it's a loaded it's, question. No, Yes, thank you. Which I didn't do. I didn't assume any facts. I asked you, do you think that considering the ethical implications of your decisions is outside the scope of your work? Do you mean I don't understand the question. Do you mean the do you mean the rules of judicial ethics? I mean when the The rules of judicial ethics. You no, know, as well as I do, the courts weigh different interests all the time, that they all the time consider like fairness among a range of different required considerations. How does that factor into your ethical considerations as a judge? Um so so let let me see if I can unpack this. Judges are ruled by rules of ethics. They're codes of ethics. Do we consider them? Oh, you bet we do. You, oh, you don't mean that. You mean do I sit back and sort of say, well, what is fair? What is fair? What do I think is fair? The answer is judges aren't supposed to engage in some sort of cosmic fairness balancing because we have elected officials to do such things. You don't respect the assignment. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. You're calling it. Well, look, thanks to the Federal Society for inviting me. As far as the rest of you people, yeah, whatever. You know, where to start? Um, I have like a jumble of different thoughts. Can we start about with the one where he calls the student an appalling idiot? You know, I, I think that would be a fine place to start. But so too is the one where he basically says, thank you to the Federalist Society and fuck you to everyone else. Um, because that is all- He just said whatever. Let's be fair, <laughs> Leah. He said whatever. Again, that is like a very good sign of neutrality and open-mindedness um, for an Article Three official. Um, thank you to one ideological group and as to the rest of you, whatever slash fuck you. Um, but, you know, it's not just kind of like what happened at the event that raised concerns, although I'll talk about how the things that unfolded at the event were concerning. It's that after this, like after some cooling off period, the judge continued to give a series of interviews that I think reflected very injudicious 
behavior. You know, he gave quotes to outlets like Reuters calling the students idiots and hypocrites, um, you know, to another outlet. Bullies. Bullies. Yeah, also bullies. Um, you know, to the Washington Free Beacon, he described the administrator, the dean's remarks as, quote, a bizarre therapy session from hell. You know, as the dog shit comments alluded to, you know, he said that the federal society students were being treated, quote, like dog shit, you know, by fellow students and administrators. And he gave an interview, you know, as a neutral, impartial political official would to Rod Dreher. Um, so at the same time, this is happening, like what is also unfolding is the conservative grievance machine and this kind of fixation about speech on campus and whether speech on campus is under attack. And I just worry that that narrative, that focus loses sight of a lot of what's happening here and some of what is very problematic. I mean, again, you had federal officials who then began to call for students to be expelled, to be disciplined, for administrators to be fired, you know, not just Judge Duncan, but then, of course, you know, feeling like he was losing out on some of the attention and the conservative grievance tour, you know, Judge Ho on the Fifth Circuit, joined by, you know, the judge on the Eleventh Circuit, Judge Branch, who had started the boycott of hiring Yale Law students because of the, like, speech problems they allege were happening at Yale law, they wrote a post in the National Review calling for the students to be punished, you know, maybe expelled, and for the students to be identified to future employers and maybe the bar, you know, for disrupting any event. And I just feel like if you're concerned about speech, maybe you should be concerned about government officials calling for private citizens to be disciplined for speech critical of government officials. And part of what I feel like is happening here is an increasingly right-wing judiciary, like bumping up against institutions, including law schools, that are increasingly open and diverse. Well, that's where the affirmative action case is going. Okay. To <laughs> I don't know. I have so, other thoughts, but I feel like that was a long-range long strategy. <laughs> but we've got that. We 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 got that covered. I think this is really hard. I think it is. I think that what you were just saying, Leah, is entirely right in that. It's a right-wing judiciary that has just a real lock on the most important and powerful institution you know, in some ways right now of all of our governmental institutions, because the Supreme Court has decided to assert this unbelievable amount of power to undo sort of the output of the political process, like in just a range of areas and lower courts are taking the cues of this Supreme Court. Um, And so I think that the reaction of someone who sits in this incredibly powerful position to entering a situation that I'm sure was extremely uncomfortable, and in which he was, you know, without power, or at least relative to these students, for a period of, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever the period was, just the outsized indignation and outrage that both he and a lot of the Mm -hmm. conservative outrage machine have demonstrated, um, I think sort of is an outgrowth of the outsized amount of power that they are used to sort of enjoying and exercising. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I do think that the sort of focus on what the students and the administration should have done differently, as opposed to sort of the larger dynamic, I do think that it is upsetting that expressions of genuine like pain and rage are ending up fueling a, a narrative of intolerance on the left and persecution of conservatives, students, and judges. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of the student activity can feed a really counterproductive narrative. Now, this is not us like sitting from in our podcast or me 
sitting in this podcast saying like students shouldn't protest, but it's just really frustrating to sort of see the way it's being received, I think, in a lot of quarters, which is just like an illustration of campus intolerance for a diverse sort of set of views on campus, because I don't think that's actually the right way to understand what went down. As you're alluding to, you know, I think these dynamics, you know, the increasingly right-wing judiciary and grievance machine creates real dilemmas and questions for students who want to express outrage and want to exercise their speech rights about, like, what they want to do when doing so. Because, like, on some level, the reaction they provoked by Judge Duncan is extremely illuminating. Um, And I wish there was more focus on how that reaction was illuminating of a larger problem. But again, like ex ante, I feel like there are real questions on the part of students, like, what do we want to do? And how do we best accomplish this? And I feel like part of, you know, what's happening here is also like a lack of clarity around student speech policies, right? Like what constitutes Mm -hmm. effective disruption? Like what's heckling, which is permissible under some policies, including here at Michigan, and what actually constitutes effective disruption once it crosses the line into effective disruption? Like what's the penalty? Like obviously there are people calling for the students to be expelled and prevented from taking the bar. That strikes me as way removed from any conception of penalty sensitivity. Um, But these are just some of the dynamics that are getting lost here about like what is happening and why that just all go out the door in favor of this fixation of campus speech. It also should be noted that this can go both ways too. I mean, I just gave a talk at a university where a conservative professor like was very, I mean, challenging and in a, in a very forthright and, um, aggressive way in the question answering session and you know like i responded and it like was fine and but i mean you didn't say thank you to the people in the audience and to you (laughs) fuck you whatever i did not um no i mean again like i think we can we don't always have to agree i think some of the issues certainly the things i write about are issues on which there will not be complete agreement and you know i want to make room for that too but i mean again this idea that liberals and liberal professors especially are sort of cultivating this like indoctrinated rank of soldiers like going out and like shouting down Kyle Duncan I think is just really unfortunate. And it's also not well, first, new. First we have lunch at the Harvard Club and right. then you go and start. I mean, right. I, and I, mean, I, I didn't this go at the Harvard Club. Um, I didn't go to Harvard. And I totally did it wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you did it wrong too, Kate. Yeah. Leah did it right. <laughs> well, we get your invites come from Leah, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly. right. I mean, that's why we're with her. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but, but again, part of, I think, the narrative where this narrative goes wrong is an idea that this is new, right? Like Justice O'Connor yeah. was protested and shouted at and heckled when she did public appearances. So was Justice Scalia, like almost like 20 years ago. Um, yeah. Do you sodomize your wife? Right, that was literally a question that a student mm-hmm. asked Justice Scalia. And so- At NYU? Right. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that this is a dynamic, knowing that there is this like rage machine, just like waiting to take this narrative and push it out and it will be picked mm-hmm. up by these outlets, I feel like that 
is a consideration, right? Yeah, of course, like what, what you do yeah. is going to be unfairly characterized, right? But the question yeah. is, is like, how far do you want to go? And I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I don't. It's actually really interesting. When that question was asked, it was in the wake of Lawrence versus yeah. Texas. So sometime around 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think, a like, sort of flurry of like discussion of it. And there were like, the student definitely, he's a student at NYU, got a lot of blowback. But it didn't reach the fever pitch that this did. Like, I don't think people were necessarily calling for him to be well, it's fired. A little, it's a little pre-social media is part of it, I think. Yeah, right? That's so, pro- yeah, that's but, probably but right. But I think it's also the case that Justice Scalia did not hit the speaking circuit about this, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, Duncan's yeah. publicity tour has been... He wasn't been appearing kind of... on Fox News um, <laughs> for the next, like, week and podcast. Yeah, that's and... true. Wait, did Duncan go on Fox News? No. Fox News has just okay, been covering no. it nonstop. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, no. and again, I don't want to. I don't want to underplay. I mean, I do think that student got a lot of blowback for it. And Liz Sepper, a couple of months ago on Twitter, Liz Sepper is a professor at the University of Texas, had a really interesting thread. She was a student at NYU at the time and mm. wrote about it and like really offered a bird's eye view of what that time mm. was like. But it just didn't feel like this. But I think you're right. There wasn't the sort of right wing echo chamber yeah. in the media that could amplify it, and we just didn't have social media to talk about it. All right, one last bit of court culture, and I'll be very fast about it. So do you all remember back in the 1860s when the Civil War ended and slavery was formally abolished with the 13th Amendment? Do you remember that? I mean, I'm not an not older worker, yes. so not personally. Um. <laughs> All right. I mean, we know you're the baby of this podcast, but Kate definitely remembers. She's like, oh, yeah, I definitely remember that time. Yep. Um, So you would think that those developments would signal the death knell for not just slavery as a formal matter, but also arguments reasoning from slavery in actual judicial opinions, right? You would think. Guess what, folks? You would think wrong. Slavery is making a comeback, at least in one Fairfax County, Virginia court. So at issue was a case where there was a question about the ownership of frozen embryos that had been created by two spouses who have subsequently divorced. And the former wife now wishes to use those created embryos to have a family. And she's making this request over the objections of her former husband. So the question for the court is, who owns the embryos? And this is actually a very common question in family law, this creation of genetic material and who owns it after especially embryos. But in answering this quite common question now, a Virginia state court judge relied in part on a 19th century law that defined enslaved people as property. And to be fair to the judge, although issues involving frozen embryos have arisen in courts for more than a quarter of a century, they're often presented in the context of divorce and treated as a question of marital property to be divided. But this was a question of first impression for the court because the spouses were already divorced, so it wasn't a marital property issue. And so this ostensible distinction prompted the judge to take a different approach, whereby he canvassed earlier iterations of Virginia's current property law on goods and chattels to see whether embryos could be divided as property between people who were no longer spouses. And one earlier iteration of the law was from the 1849 Virginia Code, in which slaves are categorized as property that could be divided and sold. And so the judge cited this law to draw a parallel to the human embryos in this case, saying that the earlier code used, quote, language almost identical to the current law. So, okay, um, I'm just going to say, as someone who teaches family law, I'm not entirely sure why the fact of an extant divorce requires you to play the slavery card, but here we are um, making slavery happen again. So 
I mean, and good method- times. methodologically, this does feel like what Dobbs and Bruin have wrought. Like they have yes. basically sent judges like back to the mid 19th century to sort of use the history legal- and tradition. That's right. And so thank you, Supreme Court. So much more to come in our next two episodes, but I think we're out of time for today. Much more to come with my ties. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. So before we go, don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and maybe one day when we convince Melissa on TikTok. And if you are as opinionated as we are, please consider leaving us a review in your favorite podcast app. Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Lippman, me, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. We're produced and edited by Melody Rowell with audio engineering by Kyle Seglin, music by Eddie Cooper, and production support from Ashley Mizuo, Michael Martinez, Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz, and digital support from Amelia Montooth. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.